0: So this week we're going to be talking about India in in some respects in the context of the coronavirus crisis which is currently sweeping through the country, but more generally in terms of nationalism and what we perceive to be the dangers and the pitfalls of nationalism. Now this is by no means an India or a Hindu bashing episode, uh, we are using India as an illustrative example because uh, it is so contemporary in the news at the moment. Uh, but this is to illustrate more broadly the dangers of nationalism. We hope you enjoy.
1: This week's episode is about the ruling party in India, the BJP, which is a Hindu nationalist party. We've not chosen this party specifically because we have a dog in this fight. This is not about uh, the sort of party politics of India and which party we support. It's about nationalism more generally, using the BJP as an example, because India is such an important example, and at the moment, uh, such a fraught one. When we say that this episode is about nationalism, What we mean by nationalism is the idea that the government of a country and the way the country is run should focus around a particular group of people. Now, in different nations, uh, nation obviously being the name for that group, in different nations who is part of the nation and who is not might be defined in different ways. So, in some nations this might be defined by ethnicity, by race by blood in other nations it might be defined by language in others it might be defined by religion and in some it might be defined by an adherence to or belief in a particular set of values as with all things in politics when we say that those are those those are the options available for what a nation can be based around of course they're not mutually exclusive and actually most nationalist movements uh, focus around a Combination of all of those things put together. Now, the BJP is a Hindu nationalist party. So, while obviously any religion focuses around core tenets and has shared values of the people in those religions, the BJP is mostly focused on a religious view of nationalism where the members of that nation are Hindu Indians. So, to give a potted and
0: simplified history of the BJP for those of our listeners who who don't know who they are? Uh, the BJP is part of a larger parent organization, the RSS, which was founded in the 1920s. And the aim of the RSS was to found a Hindu rashtra or a Hindu nation um, at that time in the context of independence against Britain. Um, like the BJP, the RSS is a right-wing Hindu nationalist organization, uh, and it has been banned several times. Uh, the first time was in the 1940s. Uh, when Nataran Godza, a member of the RSS, assassinated Gandhi uh, because he believed that Gandhi was selling out India uh, to the Muslims and to the British and uh, was moving away from this vision of a pure Hindu nation. So the BJP uh, as a party has its roots in a slightly older party, the Janata Party, uh, which came to power in the 1970s against Indira Gandhi's Congress party. The reason the Janata party was was founded was to oppose Indira Gandhi's emergency uh, in which he had drastically stripped back civil liberties in India, was arresting political opponents and generally ruling in a dictatorial fashion. So the Janata party does actually have roots in the opposition of uh, dictatorship and the erosion of civil liberties. Later on, it then evolved into the BJP. Um, and the BJP won its first period in governance in the 1990s. Uh, It's now under its second government, under the Prime Minister Narendra Modi, who defeated the Congress party in 2014. Uh, And given the very fragile state of Congress politics uh, and the the relatively uninspiring nature of their leaders, such as Rahul Gandhi, uh, it looks like the
1: BJP is now in a period of embedded dominance. So, given that it looks like the BJP are set to be in power in India for a long time to come, it's important for us to look at the BJP's core values and beliefs. Like any nationalist party, The BJP's view of its country is based on a long mythologized history which details why that particular nation is special and why their country deserves to be um, reserved for, governed for that particular nation, that particular group of people. Now this is common to all nationalist movements. The idea that the country has a special, unique, and almost infinite history stretching back into the uh, into the mists of prehistory. Um, but BJP politicians specifically have, um, in recent years, put forward some pretty unbelievable claims for how far back in history the glory of a Hindu India goes, and exactly what the glorious Hindu past of India looked like.
0: Right, so... Uh game time i'm going to give you some uh, some inventions and one of them was not claimed by a bjp minister or official to have been invented in ancient uh, kind of ancient glorious india right so the five inventions are the internet aircraft submarines plastic surgery and stem cell genetics
1: I actually I actually know this one so the chief minister of tripura state who is a bgp politician uh, in 2018 uh, claimed that ancient india uh, had access to both satellite communications and the internet, and I think aircraft as well, and that was his explanation for how um, they were able to, or in the Hindu epic, the Mahabharata, one character, and I forget who, I apologise, was able to uh, defeat an army in battle and communicate with other Hindus who were thousands of miles away across India, and it was actually Modi himself who claimed that uh, ancient Indians must have had stem cell research and plastic surgery as the explanation for how the Hindu god Ganesh has an elephant head and a human body, which I find particularly entertaining, because surely part of being a god is that you can sort of do what you want, and the rules of being human don't apply to you. And, you know, if a god has an elephant's head and a human's body, the explanation for that is sort of well, he's a god, he can do what he wants, but they've sort of reduced it to banal mortal means that they must have had plastic surgery to attach the head. Um, so submarines. Uh, annoyingly correct. Um, but worth
0: worth pointing out, again, this is not something which is exclusive to Indian or Hindutva nationalism. Um, many forms of nationalism across the world make claims to prehistoric, you know, pre-modern civilization. Uh, golden ages. Uh, White supremacism, for example, in Europe and North America draws very heavily on Norse mythology and uh, mythologized view of a perfect Aryan past. Uh, Recently Erdogan, the the president of Turkey, uh, also made claims that Islamic civilization had reached the Americas before Columbus, or of course before Columbus the Vikings, uh, and said that when Columbus first sailed into the Caribbean he saw mosques uh, perched up in the mountains and has actually offered money to reconstruct these uh, mythological mosques uh, in the Caribbean um the chinese government uh, often draws upon e- even though they're they're claiming to have a break from the, the the feudal aristocratic past and a new glorious communist future often draw upon um kind of chinese mythology and deep uh, sketchy ancient chinese history as as a means to legitimize the Uh, the Chinese civilization and its claims to a bunch of adjacent lands Uh, and in fact I think all of China's new space station modules are um, purposefully named after Chinese mythological figures instead of the kind of more banal communist slogans of the 70s
1: and 80s. That's really interesting actually I didn't know that. Um, It's worth also pointing out that often these national mythologies are and in The more problematic ones, to a certain extent, are not the ones that are clearly completely made up and and clearly nonsense, Um, but the sort of a a particular viewpoint of history or a particular spin on a period of history which isn't uh, false but is highly misleading as well. And the classic example I can think of for this, which is almost certainly going to be a podcast episode in and of its own right in the future, is the British Empire. Now, it's not that the British Empire didn't happen, we haven't made that up, but the way in which the British Empire is is viewed by most Britons, the way in which it is taught, or in fact, the way in which it is not taught in most schools, is all part of this sort of national mythology, this history, in inverted commas, story of a group of people who have this sort of common identity that travels throughout time and who achieve all these glorious things, which is... In you know, in all cases, dramatized, mythologized, and sort of over moralized, and broadly untrue.
0: Yeah. So I think if if we were to summarize that, it would be that all uh, all nationalism and all nationalist parties are predicated at worst on outright falsifications and at best on a very selective
1: and misleading view of historical events. So I guess the next question to address is. If nationalists have these views of history that are um, somewhat or completely inaccurate, why does that matter? Um, In the modern world, in terms of people's welfare and livelihood and futures, why is the fact that uh, a particular group of politicians in India, but around the world as well, have a rather daft view of prehistory? Why does that matter to us?
0: And I guess this doesn't just apply to prehistory, but fairly recent history as well. Um, if we look at the case of the Israel-Palestine conflict, for example, um, I think it's fair to say the ruling part, the ruling party in Israel uh, or the ruling party in the coalition, Likud, led by Netanyahu, is very much based uh, on a Jewish nationalist view that we were here first, everyone else is an invader. Uh, in some cases, everyone else is a, is a recent invader, uh, and so there is no Palestinian national identity. They have no right to the land. We can exclude them. Uh, this can also be seen in India, Uh, functionally it is the same argument that there was a pure Hindu, Dharmic nation there, then the Muslims invaded, but they are outsiders, they are interlopers, they don't belong. So whilst some of the claims made by nationalist parties and groups may just be entirely daft and hilarious, like ancient India had plastic surgery uh, and internet and satellites, uh, in many cases these foundation myths are then used in the present to exclude minorities. And that's why we believe nationalism is
1: broadly dangerous. Absolutely. Or, to put it another way, it's not just nationalists' misunderstanding of history that's dangerous, it's also their misunderstanding of geography. Because a nationalist viewpoint, regardless of which particular nation we're talking about, and what particular sort of characteristic qualifies people to be part of that nation, a nationalist view of the world relies on the idea that the world is parceled up, or at some point deep in the past the world was parceled up into neat groups and the people in one particular area were all part of one particular nation and had one way of doing something and then there was a discrete boundary before the people of another nation appeared on the other side and that the world is bounded into these little groups that all live their own worlds and their own lives all have their own sort of uh, virtues and societies and way of doing things and And the first thing to say about that is that that's just plainly not true. That sort of golden age of nations before migration and conquest and everything else muddled it up did not exist, and that neatly separated world is probably the most dangerous of all the nationalist myths. Because, as we've started discussing, that then leads to belief in that, then leads to the idea that people who don't fit in that ideal, that is minority groups, people who live in a particular country who don't qualify to that particular view of nationhood, whatever it is, um, are somehow wrong, not by virtue of what they've done, but simply by virtue of of being there, of existing where they happen to exist.
0: So again, just to bring it back to the Indian context specifically, uh, in this view, the the insiders or the original people of the land are In the view of the BJP it must be said, not just Hindus specifically, but those of a dharmic religious background generally, which would also include people like Jains for example, and probably Buddhists too. Um, And until fairly recently the the BJP and Hindu nationalism has also been quite accommodating I would say of Christians, although since 1998-ish as a turning point that has begun to change, and there are increasing rates uh, of anti Christian violence in India. I'd say that the, the kind of primary outsiders identified in the Hindutva worldview are Muslims who are seen as violent invaders. And um, it must be said that in the past, Muslim dynasties uh, such as the Ghaznavids did violently invade India. That does not, of course, mean all
1: Muslims today are violent interlopers, uh, but that is how the ideology perceives them. And of course, it's worth reiterating that just because a group of people haven't lived in a particular place for the entirety of history and the entirety of time doesn't mean they don't have a right to be there, Um, simply because no group of people has always inhabited a particular place since the beginning of time, firstly. And secondly, groups of people are not the uh, basic building block of society that we should care about. Individuals are. And even if the ancestor of a particular individual 200, 300, 400 years ago, however long ago, um, did violently invade and conquer a particular place and kill lots of people and forcibly convert others, that is in no way um, a reflection on those modern uh, Muslims living in India and their lifestyle and their livelihoods and their values and their moral worth. Um, And so the history of a group of people should not be a stick with which to beat the current inhabitants of that group. Um, And I do think that this is something broadly that that Gandhi
0: understood that was his philosophy and his idea uh, of India that it should be a multicultural pluralistic multi-religious place and that anyone living there at the time had a stake in Indian national identity uh, whether they were Muslim, Sikh, Hindu, Buddhist, Christian, whatever, they all had a part to play uh, in the, the rich cosmopolitan fabric of India. And it was Jinnah, the founding father of Pakistan's ideology that no, you know, different groups, different religious groups have different national identities and therefore deserve different states. Uh, in many ways, therefore, I would say that the BJP are the
1: ideological heirs of Jinnah and not of Gandhi. In terms of what the BJP is actually doing to sort of Uh, further this nationalist cause and to, uh, let's put it bluntly, oppress Muslims in India um, is a long list. First thing we're going to mention is the amendment of the Citizenship Act in 2019. Now India has never had a particularly welcoming view of immigration, Uh, its population is high enough already to be perfectly honest, but in 2019 they amended the Citizenship Act to allow Uh, refugees from neighbouring countries to come to India and have settled status, provided they were Hindu, Jain, Buddhist, Christian, uh, I think Jewish, and I think even Zoroastrian, which is a very minor religion, despite the fact that once in history it was one of the major ones, Um, but with the notable and explicit absence, obviously, of Islam.
0: And though the BJP argued that The reason for the Citizenship uh, Act amendment was to provide refuge from persecuted religious minorities in neighbouring countries, uh, Pakistan, Bangladesh, um, Afghanistan for example. It ignores the fact that there are also very persecuted Muslim minorities in those countries such as the uh, Hazaras who are persecuted in Pakistan because they're Shia uh, or the Ahmadis who are persecuted because they say they're Muslim and the majority of Pakistanis don't believe they are uh, or of course the Rohingya in neighbouring um, Bangladesh and Myanmar as we've discussed in previous podcasts. So the, the objective of The Citizenship Act amendment is clearly not to provide refuge for all uh, persecuted
1: minorities. It deliberately and explicitly excludes Muslims. And the irony of introducing a law to allow religious minorities to uh, have the freedom to practice their own religion, but only those of certain religions, shouldn't be lost on listeners. Um, On its own, this is
0: is probably bad enough as an example of, um, you know, religious nationalism and the attempt to exclude certain minorities. Uh, But paired also with the creation of a a National Register of Citizens, uh, this has raised some quite worrying prospects. So the National Register of Citizens is, as the name suggests, a registry of official citizens and legal citizens uh, of the country of India who are allowed to remain in the country, and if you're not on the the register then you may be deported. Um, Now, large parts of India do not have very good paperwork keeping systems. Uh, Records are very sketchy. And so it is entirely possible that when applied, this would strip citizenship from a large number of Indian Muslims who could not prove their ancestry or, you know, long term habitation in the country or the habitation in the country uh, of their predecessors. Now if you're not Muslim and you don't fulfill these strict criteria, then under the rules of the uh, Citizenship Amendment Act, you can nevertheless have a fast track to citizenship because you are a religious minority uh, from one of the neighboring countries. In conjunction with the Citizenship Amendment Act, uh, this has raised the prospect that significant numbers of Indian Muslims may be disenfranchised by the NRC, and because of the provisions of the CAA then have no route to citizenship and are effectively stateless, which, as we've discussed in previous
1: episodes, uh, is a massive humanitarian problem. But, as always when we talk about India, we need to have a sense of scale, and whilst we dedicated uh, an entire podcast to the um, damage of being made stateless, uh, and in the discussion of one individual in particular, The National Register of Citizens risks, and possibly already has, uh, making tens of millions of people stateless. The National Register of Citizens is also an example of the kind of tactic that's often employed by nationalist governments to oppress minorities, which is to introduce legislation that doesn't explicitly rule out a particular group, but which in practice does. Because the National Register of Citizens doesn't explicitly say that Muslims can't become registered citizens, but it relies on uh, India's poor bureaucracy and the fact that many poor indians and many indians from minority backgrounds and many indians in sort of far-flung parts of the country don't have the paperwork to prove that they are citizens despite the fact that they were born in the country and their parents and families were born in the country etc etc to disenfranchise those people and it's in some cases very difficult to draw the line between policies that the government uses to intentionally disenfranchise a certain group of people or oppress a certain group of people, and policies which accidentally have that outcome because of poor institutions in that country in general. One of the poorest institutions in India, and that's a crowded field, is the justice and police system. And again, it's really difficult to tell the extent to which the BJP knows this and is trying to make this outcome, and the extent to which this is just a symptom of a weak state. But because um, policing in India is generally so poorly run, there is a huge, almost tradition, of vigilante justice. And there are tons, go on the the internet and, and look these up, there are tons of stories about people being brought before the authorities uh, by their neighbors, by uh, groups who've gone out and tried to find these people uh, because they don't have citizenship papers. And of course, as these are just vigilante groups going around rounding up Muslims effectively, um, it's unclear whether they don't have papers or whether those papers have been taken off them. So while The National Register of Citizens and the Citizenship Act Amendment are explicit acts by the BJP to disenfranchise Indian Muslims. There are lots of other um, processes and events going on in India um, which are happening possibly with the knowledge of the BJP, possibly with the aid of the BJP, it's very difficult to tell, but which are undoubtedly horrific acts of oppression against Muslims
0: so one example of something which is again exclusionary to minorities uh, in this case not actually just just muslims uh, is the the phenomenon of cow lynchings uh, and cow protection and vigilante justice around such an issue so in hinduism uh, or at least the modern understandings of hinduism cows are held to be sacred for a variety of reasons which we won't go into here Uh, but because cows are perceived as sacred Uh, India has some quite tight laws against harming cows. So cow slaughter is actually illegal in 18 Indian states. Uh, In 10 of those, you are allowed to slaughter bulls, i.e. male cattle, but not cows, uh, female cattle. Um, And in the remainder of them, it's still quite socially frowned upon. Now, as a result of these laws and as a result of the perception that cows are sacred, there has been a lot of violence in recent years against people who have eaten beef or uh, merely have been perceived to have eaten beefed or um, someone has accused them of doing it. Uh, and in these cases, you often have mobs turning up and beating people up or forcing them to humiliate themselves or committing severe violence against them. And in the most extreme cases, killing them for eating beef uh, or for the accusation of eating beef. This is obviously horrible uh, and is also ironic for several reasons. Uh, The first of those is there is plenty of evidence to suggest that in the past uh, meat eating and beef eating was widespread in Hinduism and the practice of not eating beef has only recently become uh, more codified as a cultural practice. Uh, Secondly, that beef eating is still really common in India. Uh, It's the seventh highest country in the world by domestic consumption. Uh, and is the world's largest exporter of beef.
1: And this brings us back to the harm principle that we were discussing in earlier uh, podcast episodes, and generally um, the idea of liberalism as the solution to this, that we're not trying to say that eating beef is a good thing and that we all want to eat beef. Um, In fact, if anything, there are rather strong environmental reasons why we shouldn't eat beef. The point is that... Each individual is entitled to their own belief system, and for Hindus who don't eat beef, that's absolutely fine. But the idea that it's acceptable to go out and kill someone else for breaking something that is not one of their moral rules but one of yours only makes sense if it's predicated on this nationalist idea. Um, To most of us, or hopefully to all of us, this seems... Uh, Like a horrific thing to do and the only way that you can sort of wrap your head around it and make sense as to why these people think This is not just an acceptable, but a just thing to do is because they believe in a nationalist conception of their country because they believe in the idea that their country is um, owned uh, by and is run explicitly for a particular group of people their particular group of people who have that particular rule that you don't eat beef um, and that anyone else who doesn't agree with that rule who doesn't agree with that particular um, virtue or vice whichever way you want to look at it um, doesn't belong to such an extent that their life is no longer valuable and that's another or that crystallizes the danger of a nationalist way of thinking and what we mean by Um, exclusion of those minority groups.
0: And this therefore has quite strong parallels with the earlier podcast we did on blasphemy laws and why they shouldn't exist. Both are predicated on a very similar logic that this is a universal moral truth. Anyone that infringes on it is so beyond the pale that it is acceptable to attack them or Uh, the extreme kill them for their transgressions against the fundamental moral law of course as we've said everyone is entitled to believe that certain things are moral or immoral uh, or permissible or impermissible but it's the attempt to impose
1: that on others on a national scale which is dangerous and as i mentioned earlier they interact with poor justice systems and poor policing systems as well to make a really terrifying situation for minorities in these countries. Because uh, just like blasphemy laws can be horribly misused by mob justice, and people are often um, beaten, arrested, imprisoned, killed, whatever, um, on the basis, on the hearsay that they may have said something blasphemous, and actually there's no proof of what they did or didn't say, and it can be used um, just to attack people that, who are unpopular, that, that someone doesn't like. There are absolutely cases of the same thing happening with cow justice in India, of people being uh, lynched, or at least arrested, um, and imprisoned for life, actually, in, in Gujarat, and I think Rajasthan, um, you can be imprisoned for life for eating beef, on the accusation that they eat beef, but actually with no, with no proof of it. And it's an important side point that vigilante justice, regardless of whether you um, think eating beef is wrong and that anyone who eats beef should be arrested, or whether you think that blasphemy is wrong and anyone who blasphemes should be arrested, vigilante justice and operating that law without uh, a proper policing and justice system that proves whether or not someone actually broke the law is a horrifically dangerous and violent thing for the government to allow to happen and again here we get into the territory of not knowing to what extent the bjp encourages this activity to what extent they just turn a blind eye but its continued prevalence in india certainly suggests that it is at the very least not a priority for the government to do something about
0: so another um quite popular vigilante cause in india Uh, is the crusade against Love Jihad Uh, and Love Jihad is uh, is a very silly term but um, is the presumption that Muslim uh, boys or men are going around and seducing Hindu women and marrying them and converting them into Islam and thereby reducing the ranks of the the Hindu nation and uh, growing the ranks of this Islamic fifth column within India. Uh, and as a, as a recent twist on this, we also have dance jihad. Uh, recently, an, a video was posted on on Indian social media of two young junior doctors, uh, one male and one female, dancing in the corridors of a hospital in Kerala. And everyone loved it until it turned out that the boy was Muslim, at which point, um, you know, you had a wide sweep of comments about how this was a new form of love jihad, dance jihad.
1: And this is obviously problematic for a huge number of reasons uh, that we don't really have time to get into. We don't really have time to get into the um, the sexism of it. Um, but the the first thing to say, the main thing to say, is that Love Jihad is, is not real. Um, while beef-eating, as we've said, is not something that should be illegal and is certainly not something that vigilante justice groups have a right to go out and arrest or kill people for, Beef eating is something that happens in India. Hundreds of millions of Indians eat beef. Um, Muslims deliberately seducing Hindu women uh, to try and slowly but surely over many generations and um, many dates (laughs) um, reduce the Hindu population to zero is a myth. It is not a thing that is happening. It is a conspiracy theory. and. This shows us uh, more clearly the role of the government in fermenting these ideas and in encouraging this kind of vigilante behaviour. Because while beef-eating is a real phenomenon that happens, love jihad mainly exists because BJP politicians like to try and convince people that it exists.
0: And when we say we, it doesn't exist, we of course don't mean that no Muslim has ever, ever done this, but those are isolated incidents rather than part of a broad-sweeping, organized, systematic conspiracy. Uh, in terms of the BJP's role in whipping up uh, you know, hatred for this phenomenon and indirectly encouraging vigilantism, uh, one of the foremost proponents that, of the theory that this is happening is Yogi uh, Adityanath, who is the Chief Minister of Uttar Pradesh, the most populous state in India, uh, and also a high-ranking member of the BJP party. Um, in recently resurfaced uh, recordings of a rally in in UP. Uh, He was recorded and and seen on tape as having said if they take one Hindu girl we will take a hundred Muslim girls. If they kill one Hindu there will be 100 that we and then pause for effect while the crowd chanted kill and he was just standing there looking quite happy and smug with himself. Again, I think one of the key things to pull out here is that the BJP as many nationalist parties across the world uh, are um, are very good at pushing people right to the edge of violence but not explicitly stating it themselves so that they can plausibly claim deniability when such violence occurs uh, another example would be donald trump repeatedly saying you know the democrats are secretly pedophiles they kill they kill children they drink their blood uh, the election was rigged uh joe biden didn't really win the election um the whole system is stacked against us you know the Jews, the Muslims, all of the immigrants are out to get us, and saying this repeatedly over and over again. And then when violence happens, saying, oh, well, you know what, there's no one that could have predicted this, how could I have affected the result? And
1: it's notable that the thing they're targeting, um, interfaith marriage, is actually a um, a quite strong vehicle of tolerance, that in multicultural societies, um, one of the sort of processes by which different groups learn to live with each other and learn to accept each other's differences, and and we have this sort of integration of different groups, is where intermarriage is is common. And obviously, if you're married to someone, or if one of your parents is Muslim and the others Hindu or whatever, um, it's much easier if there is that sort of integration between cultures to have a tolerant and liberal society where people don't believe in these ridiculous violent myths and get angry about other people's um ideas and values um and so by deliberately targeting that the bjp is actually um showing that it's deliberately trying to move india away from any sort of tolerant response to its multicultural society and bring about the sort of neatly isolated box world that they've imagined where everyone from their own individual religion, ethnic group, caste, whatever, lives in their own society separately. Uh,
0: of course, in, in some cases where a particular tract of land is perceived as holy to members of two religions or uh, is perceived as important by members of two uh, nationalities, this is impossible. Um, So one uh, kind of very well-known international example is Temple Mount in Jerusalem which is claimed as holy by Muslims, Jews and Christians and therefore there are loads of arguments about how to share it or how to coexist. Uh, In India we have the example of Ayodhya, a city uh, where there was until 1992 a mosque there, uh, the Babri Masjid, uh, which was torn down uh, as a result of a a Hindu nationalist riot, uh, they tore down the mosque on the, uh, in the belief that before the mosque had been built, sometime in the Mughal era, uh, era a Hindu temple um, dedicated to the god Ram had uh, existed on that site. Uh, the jury is still out about whether such a temple existed, the archaeological evidence is still contested, but what they believed was that a Hindu temple existed there first, a mosque had been built over it, and therefore they tore down the mosque Uh, in order to to rebuild the temple and this is still a very you know salient issue in Indian nationalist politics the argument that that temple must be rebuilt uh, it's seen almost as a as a resurrection or a reclamation of that ancient perfect Hindu identity.
1: Where the BJP comes into this is that since 1992 since the uh, mosque was torn down uh, governments have Decided to sort of compromise on this issue by leaving the hill as a ruin with neither a mosque nor a Hindu temple on it Um, And the BJP has made it one of their sort of main policy platforms actually to um, Design and build a temple on the site Again on the shaky evidence that a Hindu temple uh, existed there before I had a quick look at the archaeology Although this is your specialist subject Um, and from what I can garner, um, there was a building, there is evidence that there was a building there before the mosque, but what that building is, whether it's a temple or, or, or something else, is is still unknown. But of course, as we said at the top of the podcast, nationalism rests on mythology. And in the eyes of the BJP and in the eyes of BJP supporters, um, there absolutely was a massive Hindu temple on that site, and that is fact, and that is not something that can possibly deny it. And this um, f- sort of pillar of nationalism, and of BJP nationalism specifically, um, that we deny reality and we believe in a sort of cleaned-up history of the world where our nation is perfect and nothing goes wrong in it, and everyone from our nation is is upstanding and everyone else isn't, um, is obviously dangerous for the minorities who are demonized or scapegoated uh, by that history, who are seen as interlopers, who are seen as um, terrorists or or rebels uh, simply by virtue of their identity. Clearly, that is a massive problem, and we're not trying to do that down at all, but actually it can become a problem for everyone when reality turns bad, when something, uh, a problem, a disaster occurs in a country, and the nationalist government, because it doesn't fit with their particular worldview, it doesn't fit with their uh, narrative of their own country, rather than dealing with the problem or trying to come up with a solution, uh, simply denies its existence. And the case that we're working towards here is uh, another parallel with Donald Trump is the COVID-19 pandemic, which both the American Republican government and the Indian BJP government have done very little about. So with regards to to COVID, um,
0: as as this is an unfolding crisis, obviously the stats and the details are a little murky. Uh, In terms of this second wave, the BJP has done very little to stop it. Um, When the first wave of COVID was sweeping across the world, the BJP did, slightly late, impose an incredibly draconian lockdown, Um, but without much of a social support net for those who could no longer leave their homes and work. And of course, because many people are reliant on day-to-day work in India, the lockdown had limited effect. Um, Even though it was presented as incredibly strict, um, many people simply could not self-isolate because they did not have the financial support to do so and to just not work. Um, and as the second wave has come through, the BJP government has largely adopted a, a policy of denialism, um, refusing to accept that you know these things are happening or that this is the case. Part of the response is delegated to individual states. So this is not all to be like thrown at the door of Narendra Modi himself. But for example, in Uttar Pradesh, where we have a BJP governor, Uh, The the government has started taking down posts on social media like Twitter which imply that there is an oxygen shortage in Indian hospitals, which there absolutely is, uh, and recently have begun prosecuting and trying to imprison uh, critics of the government's coronavirus response saying they are spreading
1: misinformation and public panic. And hopefully listeners will have seen on the news recently that in the last month or so, India has hit a second wave, and as it has been in most countries, its second wave has been considerably uh, many, many times larger than the first wave. Uh, I say has been, it's of course still going on, and actually not so- showing any signs of slowing down anytime soon. Um, currently, the official statistic for the daily number of uh, new COVID-19 cases in India is running at about 360,000 per day. Obviously, that needs to be uh, viewed again in the context of the scale of India and the size of its population, but that is over three times larger than its peak in, a, in the first uh, wave that India experienced, and as I said, still increasing. But the other thing that needs to be taken into account with the size of this second wave in India is the complete lack of testing. So the statistic that's normally used to judge how well a country is testing for COVID is the number of tests per confirmed case. So if there are lots and lots of testing going on, only, say, one in 100, one in 200, or I think the best ratio at the moment is Australia, which is about one in 2,000 cases actually turns up positive uh, as a case of of COVID-19, and that shows that the country is is testing a large number of people, if only a small number of the tests come back positive. India's uh, tests per confirmed case at the moment is just under five, so while we can't put an exact number on it, what we do know is that that 360,000 a day uh, of new cases is massively underestimating the actual size of the second wave of COVID in India at the moment.
0: So again, to reiterate the central point that we're working towards from these examples, extreme nationalist movements are of course terrible for minorities because they are based on this mythologized view of the nation uh, and that necessarily excludes certain people. But because of the nature of mythologizing uh, and denying reality, all extreme nationalist parties and governments eventually evolve into a form which is threatening not just to minorities, but to everyone. Because when the denialism becomes endemic, when the dilution of democratic institutions becomes so severe, when any criticism of the government uh, is seen as aligning with enemies of the nation, then it becomes impossible to criticise the government even when those decisions are terrible for everyone in the country, as is the case now with India's coronavirus pandemic. And that's an important
1: point, because the um, bringing about an end to extremist nationalist ideas such as this requires the uh, humanity and the empathy of people in the majority. India is only around 15% Muslim. So if Indian Muslims continue to protest against the BJP and vote against the BJP, but the majority continues to vote for them, this situation is never going to change. If the majority of white Americans continue to vote for the Republican party, leaving um, Latino, Mexican, Muslim immigrants to vote for the Democrat party, that situation is never going to change. And the same is true in Britain, where nationalist, white supremacist rhetoric um, has been um, increasing, I suppose is the word, uh, for a long time. And actually, that is definitely going to be another podcast uh, topic that we talk about in the future. The point is, majorities, if they view that they benefit from this nationalist idea are almost complicit in it and the only way it's going to stop in a democratic society is if the majority turns against it as well.
0: In one sense there might be a rather pessimistic conclusion to draw from this that the only way that nationalist movements break down is when that denialism gets to the point where there is such a catastrophe that it affects everyone that there is no longer a viable way of supporting that party. Some people might argue in the UK, the consequences of Brexit might be so catastrophic as to... so as to break the argument of British exceptionalism. Uh, Or in the US, for example, um, Trump tanking the the economy uh, and responding so badly to the coronavirus crisis that he was voted out, albeit by a very, very slim uh, and
1: worrying uh, majority. And the most dangerous response to this that we definitely need to put down is the nationalists' response to this to say, well, okay, when we have these multicultural societies with lots of different groups uh, who don't necessarily mix well and who have conflicting values, um, that is the cause of these frictions. And actually, if we could uh, get the world to its neatly boxed uh, nationalist ideal where different people of different values are neatly sorted into different countries, that would solve the problem. And... This, in my own personal opinion, is probably the most important lesson that students can learn from history, and of all the reasons why we teach history to children, this is for me the most important, is to realise that that ideal, if you can call it such, I'm awkward calling it an ideal because it's not, in my opinion, ideal, but that idea has never existed. It is a complete myth. And it cannot be created in the future. The world is simply too complicated and mixed up and colourful and rainbow. And um, proposing that as a solution is extraordinarily dangerous because one, it's fanciful, and two, what that actually looks like in practice is extraordinarily violent. Um, And in fact, the only example I can think of that possibly fits into this is the settlement of the Americas by white settlers uh, and complete extermination of the native population to be replaced by their own, is the only thing I can think of that is what that looks like in reality. Uh,
0: Another example that I I would put forwards of this, um, illustrating the the severe violence which is inherent in any attempt to draw neat national lines and box people in, is of course, in the case of India, partition. Um, And the separation of Pakistan from India uh, at the end of the British colonial period caused massive upheavals and anywhere between one and two million deaths as refugees crossed crossed the border in either direction and there was extreme intercommunal violence. Any attempt to neatly divide people into boxes in order to try and solve conflicts has historically
1: really only generated more conflict. And partition is a very good point to end on because... As this this podcast was ostensibly about India, um, it should be in the recent political and historical memory of India, um, and indeed in living memory of Indians, Bangladeshis, and Pakistanis, that this nationalist ideal boxing the world up into separate categories is extraordinarily dangerous, and nowhere in the world should that knowledge be more relevant or more raw than in South Asia Uh, and that
0: that seems like a very good note to end on Uh, if you enjoyed this week's podcast please get in touch with us, Uh, tell us what you agreed with, what you disagreed with any questions you have, any suggestions for future podcasts you can contact us by email uh, at contact.theviolet.gmail.com you can find us on Twitter uh, our handle is at underscore theviolet underscore or you can can visit our website uh, theviolet.net Thank you for listening and hope to see you next week.